We started a series last week on prayer entitled, Teach Us to Pray. We started looking at the fact that whenever Jesus' disciples find him in prayer and they come to him, they, they, they ask him that very question, Lord, teach us to pray. We want to learn how to pray, and who better to teach us, right, than Jesus himself And what better to learn about than communion and fellowship and intimacy with God in prayer. And so we're unpacking the Lord's Prayer over these next several weeks together. And this morning is no different. So let's read it together in Matthew chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 5 and read down through verse 13. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, what we want to get to the heart of this morning is this. What makes the difference between a powerful, potent prayer life and one that is impotent? Right? What makes the difference between those two things is this, is how many cylinders are firing in your soul? Let me tell you what I mean by that. Listen, you can have a V8 engine under the hood of whatever jacked up truck you have out there in the parking lot, right? But if that engine's only firing on four cylinders, it might start and it might run, but it's going to be incredibly rough and it's going to have no power to it whatsoever. And listen, our prayer lives are much the same way. Unless we're firing on all, all the cylinders of our soul are firing in our prayer life, it's not going to be very powerful. It might run, but it's not going to move you very far. And that's what Je- when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says the problem for many of us is that the full extent of our prayer life resembles a car with, that's crippled. It doesn't have as many cylinders as needed in order to produce the kind of power that's necessary to propel it forward and move it in a given direction. Right? And Jesus says, listen, prayer has all kinds of facets to it. He says, we, he says but the, the, the one out of which all of the others flow is this first one. Now we saw last week that the fatherhood of God is the foundation for all of our prayers, for all of our access to God, that we come to Him as children who are honest, that we come just sharing our real hearts and our real concerns and our real needs. That we come to him as children who are trusting, knowing that he gives, doesn't give a snake to a child who asks for a fish, and he doesn't give stones to a child who asks for bread. So we trust him that what he gives is good. And we come to him as children who are helpless, right? And we said last week that if we refuse to feel our own helplessness, God will help us feel our helplessness. Anybody got a testimony this week of how God has helped you feel your own helplessness, right? That's the reality of life. That's the foundation of all prayer. But listen, this first move that Jesus makes before the Father in heaven in prayer is the root out of which all, or the, the, the fountain out of which all the other types of prayer flow in the Lord's prayer. Jesus says one of the reasons that our prayer life doesn't have much power to it, it's not very potent, is because our prayer life tends to revolve around us and our needs and our problems. 
But that is not where Jesus begins. Let me, give you a, let me give you an example. See, most of our prayer lives look like this. They look like us coming before the presence of God and bringing Him all of our issues, right? And all of our problems and unloading the suitcase at His feet. And some of our suitcases are bigger than others, but we unload all, those su- all of our stuff right there at the Father's feet. And so we come before the Father and we say things like, Father, I'm struggling financially. Will you provide resources? Can I get a prom- Father, I need a promotion. I need a raise. Or we come before God and we ask, say, God, I'm lonely. Will you provide with me deep, lasting, intimate friendships so I don't have to journey and travel through life alone? Or we come before God and we say, God, I'm hurting. Will you bind up the wounds of my soul and bring healing? Or we come before God and we say, Father, my family is unraveling. Will you stitch us back together? Right? We come before God with all of our problems and all of our issues and all of our needs. And listen, church, these are not wrong prayers. Let me just say that. They are, they are one of the cylinders of prayer. But, and so they are not wrong prayers to come before God with your problems and your needs. Here's the issue for many of us, though, is that when we come before God, right, Jesus teaches to pray. He doesn't teach us to start with listing our personal needs. He teaches us to start with praying for a passion to see the name of God set apart and above everything else in our lives. That's why he says true prayer begins. With God and not us. Right? So it's not that we're not wrong to pray for our needs. And yet if we're exclusively just praying for our needs, Jesus says your prayer life will be impotent. It will not be potent. It will not be powerful. Because Jesus, the very first thing out of his lips, because it's the first thing on his heart is this. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And in doing this, Jesus is teaching us this. He's teaching us to pray God-centered prayers. To pray God-centered prayers. Now, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Here's what I mean by that. Right? Jesus is teaching us to pray, hallowed be your name. He's teaching us to pray God-centered prayers. Because the word hallowed, like, how many of you guys use that word in your everyday vocabulary? <laughs> right? That's a pretty old English word. And yet the translators don't, get rid of it. And one of the reasons the translators don't get rid of it in our more modern translations is this, because we don't have a singular word that can replace it, because it's so packed full of meaning. See, to hallow something means to make it holy. It means to set it apart. It means to set it above everything and anything else in life. To hallow something means to honor it, to adore it, to cherish it, to love it, to make it holy. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says our first priority in prayer is that the Father's name be hallowed, not that God be present in our current situation or that God do something about our personal needs and problems, but that the Father's name be exalted, that the Father's name be lifted high, that the Father's name be extended uh, across the whole earth and in every facet and corner of our lives. Jesus, the first priority off his lips, because the first priority on his heart is the honor, the glory, and the reputation of God have its rightful place in our lives and in our land. Jesus says that is the first priority in prayer. It's God-centered, not man-centered. Jesus teaches us to pray in such a way that it takes the focus off of ourselves and places it upon God himself. Now listen, when Jesus teaches us to pray this way, when he teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name, Right? Many people come to it and they say, well, listen, Jesus is just saying start with praise. Right? Start just by praising God for who he is. 
And that is a part of what it means to hallow the name of God, but it's not all of what it means to hallow the name of God because that word hallowed is actually a command in the scriptures, right? And some of you are like, well, what does that mean? Here's what that means. That Jesus is not just starting by saying, God, you are beautiful. God, you are lovely. God, you are worthy of adoration. God, you are worthy of honor. God, you are worthy of exaltation. He's not just stating these things about God, what he's doing. Listen, church, and this is powerful. He's asking God to make those things true. He's asking God, God, would you act in such a way as to make these things real and true in human history? He's not just saying, you are these things. He's saying, God, would you make this reality in my life? Would you make this reality in our land? That's what he's asking God for. So it's not just a statement or a declaration, but it's actually Jesus' first request. It's actually his first petition, asking God that his name would be exalted, that it would be set apart and above everything and anything else in life. That's what Jesus is asking for because this is the bent of Christian prayer that's the bent of it that it's god centered now you might be asking yourself why why does jesus want us to pray these god-centered prayers why is this first on the lips and first on the heart of jesus let me give you first of all a god-centered reason and then the overflow of that in our lives you with me why why this first first of all jesus teaches to pray this first because god is indeed jealous for his name God is jealous for his name, church. See, when the Bible speaks the name of God, it is synonymous with his reputation, synonymous with his honor, synonymous with his glory, synonymous with the respect that is due him. And listen, we use that concept of name the same way today, don't we? Do we? Yes. Yes. This would be, this is what it means to shake your head in an affirmation. We use the word name in the same way, the concept of name in the same way in our culture. See, when someone mentions a person's name, we immediately think of what? Their reputation. Are they honorable or dishonorable? Are they worthy of praise or criticism? Are they someone to be followed and emulated or are they someone that we have to depart from the path that they've been walking down? We immediately think of their reputation. See, I could mention the name this morning of famous politicians and pastors and you would immediately think of a reputation. I could mention the name of athletes and actors and you would immediately think of a reputation whenever you hear their name. I could mention the names of recording artists and celebrities, family and friends. Let's get real personal. And you immediately think of their reputation. You would instantly think of the things that they have done or haven't done, things that they have said or things that they haven't said, which have led you to a particular perspective on their life, how you view them. Right? We use the, name, the, word, the concept of name the same way today. Right? Let me take it a step further. Under the laws of our nation, if someone falsely accuses you of something, you can file suit against them for defamation of character, right? You can file suit against them. In some places, it might be in civil court. Some places, it might be in criminal court, but you can file suit for defamation of character. Listen to what defamation of character is, a definition of it. Defamation of character is any intentional false communication, either written or spoken, that harms a person's reputation. It decreases the respect, regard, or confidence in which a person is held or induces disparaging, hostile, or disagreeable opinions or feelings against a person. Right? 
And so it lowers. If somebody is defamed someone's character, they've made false accusations against them, false statements against them. It lowers their reputation and respect in the eyes of others, and that is a legal or a charge, either in criminal or civil court, that you can file suit for. Now, the very fact that we have a law like that on our books, listen, church, means that we use the word name and the concept of name the very same way that the Bible uses it. You know why? Because you and I are jealous for our name as well. We're jealous for our reputation. We're jealous for our honor. We don't want falsely to have our name accused or have our name drugged through the mud, but we will defend it even legally if necessary to clear our name because we're jealous for our name. Now listen, the reality though for most of us in the room, listen, I'm gonna go ahead and throw myself into that bag and under that bus because for all of us, right, we are a mixed bag, aren't we? Right? There are some things in our lives that should rightfully be praised and some things in our lives that should rightfully be criticized. Right? There are some values that we have that should be affirmed and some values that we have that should be rejected. And so we are rightfully at times right, to, to be, to, the, the, for rightful reasons perhaps at times in our lives, to have our reputation lowered in the eyes of others and sometimes it's raised in the eyes of others no matter how jealous we are for our name. But if we, who are imperfect sinners who are saved by grace, are jealous for our name, then listen, church, how much more so should a perfect, holy, loving, heavenly Father, in whom there is no darkness but only light, in whom there is no evil but only good, in whom there is no shifting or changing like the shadows when the sun rises overhead from one point in the day to the other, how much more so should he be jealous for his name? How much more so should he be jealous for his reputation, for his honor, for his respect? And the Bible says that he is. And we could spend a lot of time on this this morning, but I'm gonna give you a few examples. I cut a, like two pages of notes out. So be thankful. Rejoice. Let me give you some examples. First and foremost, at the very outset, whenever God redeems his people out of slavery, bondage, and captivity in Egypt and leads them toward the promised land and he meets Moses on the mountain and he gives them the commandments, the first three center around the fame, reputation, honor of God. And it's culminated in the third one in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, when he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does he mean by that? You shouldn't treat it lightly. You shouldn't treat God's name flippantly. You shouldn't treat God's name to be of little significance. You shouldn't treat his honor as if it is worth little value. God is jealous for his name. In addition, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God refuses to share the glory that is rightfully due to himself with anyone else because he's jealous for his name. In Ezekiel chapter 36, perhaps one of the most vivid places to see this in all the Bible, in verses 21 and following, God had judged his people on account of their sin, raised up another nation to come in and lead them into captivity. And he says, where you're going, you're, as you go into captivity, you're profaning my name because the people of the other nations are looking at you saying, this God, this Yahweh, this sovereign Lord of all the universe, how can his people be displaced from their land and their inheritance? He must not be very powerful. He must not be very majestic. He must not be very glorious. And God says in Ezekiel 36 this, he says, but I had concern for my holy name 
which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to do, do this or act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, all caps, sovereign Yahweh, the Lord, sovereign King of all the universe, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. How is he going to do that? He's going to go to all the nations to which he has scattered them. He's going to gather them up and bring them back into their land. He's going to sprinkle clean water on them and cleanse them. He's going to remove their hearts of stone that were hardened towards God and replace them with hearts of flesh that are soft and responsive and malleable before God that would want to do the will of God and obey His commands. He says, I'm going to do all of that, not for your sake, but for mine. For my name. For my reputation and my honor. And then Jesus, in the Lord's prayers, He teaches His followers to pray. He says, pray, hallowed be your name. The first thing on the lips and the first thing in the heart of Jesus is the honor, reputation, glory of the Father. And if what matters most to God matters most to us, then we begin to pray like this. God is jealous for his name. But listen, I want to show you something. that Because God is jealous for his name, it's actually for your good. Let me show you that. Can I show you that? You're like, man, that's a big God. But it's for your good. Here's why. Hallowing, church, listen, is the path to healing in your life. I want you to know that. So you need to write that down in a notebook, on a sermon notes, in a margin of your Bible. Hallowing is the path to healing in your life. See, one of the things that interests me about this prayer, if you go read any book on the Lord's Prayer, maybe you've heard sermons on the Lord's Prayer before, maybe you've read the Lord's Prayer before, and you go, you know what? That's interesting. Jesus says, praise first, and everything else comes after that. Adoration first, and everything else comes after that. Hallowing the name of God, everything else comes after that. But listen, I want you to know something, that the order of that prayer is not incidental. Jesus didn't take all these types of prayer of adoration and intercession and petition and thanksgiving and, and confession and all, all, he didn't put them all in a bowl and shake them all up and go, you know what, put them in a hopper, turn the wheel, I'm going to reach in and grab one, boom, slide it into the slot number one. It is not incidental, it is not by happenstance or mistake that it is in the first position, nor is it mechanical, church. So Jesus doesn't say, here's a list of all the things you gotta do when you, when you pray. Check off all these boxes and work through the mechanics of all of this. So I start, adoration, check, right? Petition, check. Confession, check. Intercession, check. I'm moving, submission, check. I'm moving through all the boxes on the list. It's not mechanical either, it's organic. Because all the others rightfully practice grow out of this one. Because hallowing in your life, church, is the path to healing. Let me show it to you. You cannot pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven unless the name of God, the fame of God, the reputation of God is the highest and first priority in your life. Because we, you and I will never bend our knee to Jesus in submission apart from adoration. It will not happen, particularly when things get difficult and they are hard in following Jesus and obeying his will 
and allowing him to run and rule our lives. We'll get to this type of prayer next week of submission, but listen, I want to tell you, you will never have that kind of prayer of submission unless there's first adoration. You will never bend your knee to Jesus unless he is ruling and reigning over the throne. And here's why. Because you and I, we always imitate what we adore. See, what will shape your life is what you love the most. What is highest and first priority, right? If what is highest in your life is your friends, then you will imitate them. If what is first place in your life is your career or celebrities, you will imitate the people who have been successful in, their, in, in your field of work. You will pattern your life after them. No matter what the cost, if the people who are most important to you are people that you see on YouTube and on TV stations and in movies, that you want to look like them, then you will act like them. See, our greatest problem when it comes to our lives is not how we act, but what we adore. Because what you adore, you will always imitate. And you will never say, your kingdom come, your will be done, and bend your knee to Jesus in your actions unless there's first adoration that is filling and flooding your heart for God. But not only that, church, listen. You will never, you and I will never have peace in petition without hallowing God. You know what petition is? And we'll get to that in a few weeks. Is whenever you bring your needs, right? We, we are, we're bringing our needs, we're bringing our problems, we're bringing our issues before God. But we will never have peace in petition unless there is first adoration. Unless we are first hallowing the honor, the reputation, and the name of God. Right? Here's why. Because you can drag all your problems before God. You can bring all your issues before Him. You can unload your suitcase at His feet and say, God, here's all my stuff. Here's all my junk. But you will not be able to walk away and have peace over anything you have brought to Him if what you have brought to Him is first place in your life. And you're merely using God as a lever that you're trying to pull to get that. For instance, if what is first place in your life is a promotion in your workplace and you're coming before God, God, please, I need this promotion. We need these extra finances. We need these resources. God, I need to climb the ladder a little bit. And you're asking and pleading with God for favor in the eyes of your boss and favor in the eyes of your co-workers and to be raised up right to be the head not the tail you're coming before God you're like every phrase you've ever heard you're pouring out before God I need this promotion I need this promotion and you walk away and yet you're still riddled with anxiety why because you're hallowing the promotion and not God so you will never have peace in petition be able to leave your needs and requests before the throne of God and walk away and believe that they're going to be taken care of unless there is a hallowing and adoration of God in your life. But not only that, church, you will never experience the forgiveness of God in confession unless there is first adoration. Right, some of you are like, if, if I've been in pastoral ministry now for, in some capacity for 20 years. And listen, over the course of those 20 years, I've heard this on multiple occasions. And some of you may have actually said these words after you have sinned, perhaps in, a, in what you would consider to be small ways or in big ways, and there are people who love you and they come around you and they extend forgiveness to you and they receive you back into their lives and they open the scriptures to you and counsel you through the word of God saying God is a God who's 
has steadfast love that endures from generation to generation. That is, he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. That he would forgive you and cleanse you and receive you back if you would come in repentance and you come in repentance turning from sin. And yet you walk away and you're still carrying guilt. You're still carrying shame. Here's why, church. Because you have failed something that is more important to you than God. Something that has higher place of priority in your life than God. Some of you perhaps when you've fallen on your face in sin and you look up and what you see staring at you is not the face of a forgiving father but the face of a judging mother and father. And your parents' expectations have set the bar for you so high that whenever you fail that you're, you, you can never escape your guilt and shame because you know you have failed their expectations. And their expectations are more important to you than God. Pleasing them is more important to you than pleasing God. Do you see, you will never, we could, I don't have time, we could go on and give example after example after example. If there is something in your life that is of more importance, of higher priority to you than God, you will never, if you fail it, You can affirm intellectually, yes, God has forgiven me. These people have welcomed me back in, but I have not been welcomed back in with them. And so you will continue to be riddled with guilt and shame. Not only that, but without hallowing in your life the name of God, you will never move toward trusting him. You'll never be able to trust him fully. You will always believe that he's holding out on you. You will always be duped by the lie that our first parents believed back in the garden when when the serpent comes to our first parents and says, listen, I know you believe that God has your good at heart, but listen, he's holding out on you. And the lie that our first parents believed in the garden is that if God withheld anything, that he was withholding, withholding everything. That if God drew a boundary around anything, that he was drawing a boundary around everything. And that has been hardwired into our psyche, into our souls from the time of the fall. You know how I know? Look at at your kids. Look at my kids. Listen, I was at Target yesterday. We went to a birthday party yesterday morning and had a great time. Got their kids all sugared up on candy and popsicles and cupcakes, right? And then we went to Target to do a little bit of shopping. Um, And we're there at Target walking through the store and my, my daughter's like, I'm thirsty, daddy. And so I said, okay, baby, let's get you something to drink at the checkout. So we get it. I said, you got two choices, right? Um, because you done been sugared up. You're not getting anything that's full of sugar, right? Anything that's sugar-free in that case, you can have. So she's like, okay. So she gets something that, was, that didn't have any sugar in it. And my son was like, daddy, I want something too. I said, okay, same deal. You can have something that's sugar-free. I don't want something that's sugar-free. Right? Why can't I have this bottle of lemonade that has, you know, 83 grams of sugar in it? Because you just had a popsicle. So? You just had a cupcake. So? So we're standing at the checkout counter and I'm trying to reason with my 10, almost 11-year-old son, right, about why it is that I've drawn this boundary for him. Because in his mind, he believed that if I was withholding anything, I was withholding everything. You know how I know that? Because that's exactly what he said to me. When we walked away from the register and he said, Daddy, you wouldn't let me have anything. No, baby, you had choices. You just didn't want any of them. You didn't choose any of those. I gave you options, but you chose none of them. 
And listen, if God's name and fame, if his reputation and value is not first and highest in your life, if there is not adoration, then you will never be able to move to fully trusting him. That what he withholds, he withholds for your good. And that what he gives, he gives for your good. That his boundaries are good things that he's established for you and that you should live in them and trust them. See, hallowing church is the path to healing in your life. Some of us perhaps carry wounds that we've been, we've, we've just had festering in our hearts for years. And we come before God praying, God, would you bring healing? God, would you bring healing? God, would, would you bring healing? And yet there's no healing. Why? Perhaps because there is something that is of greater priority to you in your life than the name and fame and reputation and honor of God. We said it last week, there's often times, church, that the thing that you want, you don't get by going after it immediately, but by going after something else that helps bring it into reality. And this is true here as well. Hallowing the name of God, adoring, praising the name of God is the path to wholeness and healing and flourishing in your life. You'll never have peace and petition. You'll never experience the forgiveness, real tangible forgiveness in confession. And you will never fully trust and you will never fully submit to God without first adoring him. So how does this work? We've got a few minutes before we close. How does this work? Let me give you, let me tell you how this works, right? Here's how it works. The name of God is hallowed in your life when the person of God is adored. The name of God is hallowed when the person of God is adored. And our biggest problem for you and I is this, is that we're adoring something or someone else. And you know who it is? Most frequently, it's ourselves. We live in a self-infatuated culture. Exhibit A. The jumbotron. You ever been to a sporting event? Right, you're there in the stands, and there's something going on in the court, the field, right there in front of you. Right, these guys who have incredible athletic prowess and skill are out there playing, and all of a sudden the camera pans, perhaps between the play or in the middle of a you know, halftime or a break in the quarters or between innings, pans into the crowd and it catches people on the jumbotron. They realize they're on it. What do they do? They lose their mind. Right, they just flip out. They're just going crazy, right? And they forget there's anyone else around them, that they are the only person they can see, right? Because we're self-infatuated. And listen, some of you are like, well, I don't have a jumbotron in my home. What you do, it's called a smartphone, right? Those are modern-day jumbotrons by which you can display your image and your honor to all the world. I was, took my son to a Mavs game a few years ago, and there was a lady who was sitting in the row in front of us, and we were watching the game as it unfolded on the court. And you got you know, players like Dirk Nowitzki down there, who's you know, going to be probably first ballot Hall of Famer. You got Jason Terry. Some of you remember Jason Terry. Um, little baller, right? He's got a mad crossover. I, I could play baseball growing up, but I had no crossover, all right? Um, and so you got all these skilled athletes on the court. And she spent, I, I kid you not, she spent the entire time while she was sitting at the game, I don't know if it was her husband or her boyfriend, somebody she was with that was in front of her, the entire time with her phone out, her selfie camera on, just looking at herself in the mirror, kind of fixing her hair, and then she would do 
makeup, and then she would take a sip of drink. And then she would pull up her phone, and she would fix her makeup again. And she would take a sip, eat some popcorn, she'd pull up her phone, she'd fix her makeup again. Right? She's constantly staring at herself in the camera, infatuated with herself, when there was something bigger and grander going on around her and in front of her. But yet she's too infatuated with herself to see anything else. To give attention to anything else. To affirm or value anything else. And that's our fundamental human problem. In fact, there is a traveling exhibit of artwork, which is called artwork, called, I wrote it down. Let me tell you what it is. It's called the National Hashtag Selfie Portrait Gallery that is on display in legitimate museums of art, right? Where people are taking selfies, uploading them somewhere, and they're getting displayed in these museums as it travels around. Why? Because we're infatuated with ourselves. We can only see ourselves and nothing bigger or grander or more beautiful than ourselves. Right? You might, well, it's a self-portrait. Well, yeah, well, back in the day, self-portraits actually required you to be a legitimate artist, not a narcissist with a self, selfie camera and a smartphone. The name of God will be hallowed in your life when the person of God is adored. And for the person of God to be adored you have to be removed from the throne and he has to be installed. And you have to see him as more lovely, as more beautiful than anything else and anyone else. So how do you get there? Here's how you get there. You gotta flood your heart with truth and beauty, church. You gotta flood your heart with both truth and beauty. Listen, the psalmist says this in Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist says, What I want more than anything else in this life is to see and behold the beauty of God in all of his majesty, in all of his glory, in all of his fame, in all of his honor, in all of his bigness. And listen, whenever you behold God in all of his bigness, what happens is that person that you're staring back at in the selfie cam on your smartphone becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as God becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a natural byproduct. When God becomes bigger, we become smaller. Right? It's a very prayer that John the Baptist prays as he's ministering prior to the arrival of the Christ. And whenever he sees Jesus' ministry launching, his earthly ministry launching, he says, I must what? Decrease. He must what? Increase. He's got to be on the rise and I've got to fall back. I've got to get smaller. He's got to get bigger. Right? And to do that, you've got you to flood your heart with truth and beauty. You've got to fill your mind with the beauty of God. You've got to fill your mind with the truth of God. Things that are worthy of praise. And listen, church, there is nothing more worthy of, pra- than, of praise about God than the fact, and I'm, I'm going to take you back to the prayer, than the fact that He is our Father who is in heaven. No other religion on the face of the earth can hold those two things together. A holy, just, righteous God who is compassionate, tender, merciful, and kind and accessible. No other religion on the face of the earth can take this 
idea of a holy God in heaven and this idea of a compassionate God, God who is a father and meld them two together other than Christianity. There is no other religion on the face of the earth that brings those two things together because no other religion on the face of the earth worships the Son. And it is in the Son, Jesus Christ, not the S-U-N, right? Some of you look at me strange, right? The S-O-N, it is in Jesus Christ that the holiness, truth, justice, and righteousness of God is melded with his mercy, compassion, tenderness, and kindness. And he brings those two things together. It is in the gospel where we find the beauty and truth of God that is most deserving of our adoration, most deserving of our praise. That, and so what happens when you see that he's not only a father, but he's a father in heaven. That he's not only in heaven, but he's also a father. See, both of those things brought together. Here's what praise and adoration becomes. It becomes a pendulum in your life. Some of you may have seen those old grandfather clocks, maybe sitting in a, a, a parent's house or a grandparent's house or maybe in your house or maybe in a flea market or antique store, but those grandfather clocks that have that pendulum that swings back and forth and back and forth, right? Uh, last fall, I, I remember staying in someone's home. They opened it up graciously to let myself and a friend of mine be their guest, and they had an old grandfather clock right outside my door, and I didn't sleep a wink that night. Because that thing was tick-tock, tick-tock, all night long, and every hour on the hour, it, the bells went off, Right? But as it swings, it, there's a pendulum to praise. There's a pendulum to adoration as it goes back and forth. He's a holy, just, holy, just, righteous God, a merciful, compassionate, tender God, a holy, just, and righteous God, a loving, compassionate, and tender God. And it swings back and forth. And what holds that together is the person of Jesus Christ. That pendulum in your life See, if you only see God as just and, and, and holy and righteous and unapproachable, if that's all you see God as, right, you will never come to him and say, our Father. You will always be someone who's out there, but not someone who is right here. But if you only see God as a, as a compassionate, gracious, tender, and loving Father, then you will never be moved to awe and adoration because you know what? It never cost him anything to love you that way. If he just accepts and loves everyone without any justice and truth and holiness, then it didn't cost anything, him anything to love you. But if it cost him the very life of his son to love you in the way that he does, to receive you as a father so that his justice and his love would meet at the cross and both would be satisfied and then he would say, come, come. That is what will stir your heart to adore this God whose name is worthy of all of our hallowing. Without either of those two sides of the pendulum, you will never be moved. You might tremble in fear. And you might high five God. Yay, God, right? There will never be a holy awe and reverence coupled with an intimacy in your life that would lead to adoration and hallowing. Is that true of you this morning? Have you ever come to see the great, holy, just, righteous, 
truth-filled God. And the loving, compassionate, tender, and merciful God brought together and held together in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful thing, church. And don't take my word for it. Take the word of the scriptures. I'm gonna read a text to you, then I'm done. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, Peter is a very interesting text, but I want you to hear what he says. He says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving, not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This salvation, this gospel of Jesus living in our place, dying in our place. He says, the angels, they long. The actual word there is lust. They are passionate to look into these things. These, think about it. These created beings who have been in the presence of God from longer than you and I have walked the face of the earth, they are enamored with the truth of the gospel. They are infatuated captivated, longing to see these truths unfolded that were concealed in the prophets but now revealed in Christ. They long to see these things. Why? Because they saw their friends fall and there was no plan of salvation for them. And yet when man falls, those created in the image of God, God says, we're going to act before the foundations of the world he had set in motion a plan to redeem and rescue those made in his image and so the angels are like that is amazing does that amaze you does it move your heart to adore him I hope that it would because until it does you will not have healing let's pray together Father, we come this morning thanking you for your gospel. It's not our gospel, but yours. We thank you that you have loved us in your Son. That you have reconciled us through your Son. And that one day he shall return for us. So that what we adore here, having seen, as Paul says in Corinthians, dimly as in a mirror, a poor reflection that we will one day see face to face so that what our hearts now partially struggle to adore will one day be captivated with for all eternity. Father, I pray this morning that if there are those in the room who are struggling to find healing, forgiveness for sin, peace in their petition, trust even within the boundaries that you've established, willing to submit to you in all things. They're looking for healing, God. I pray that they would know that the only place to find that is on the path to hallowing and that the gospel would raise in their hearts an affection and adoration for you. That your name and your renown would be the desire of their hearts and they would pant after you as a deer pants for streams of water. 
Father, we not only declare those things to be true, but we ask you this morning to make them to be true in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name.